Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. 30 years ago, Cristina Garcia's celebrated debut novel, Dreaming in Cuban, introduced the world to the Delpinos, a Cuban family separated by political allegiances and national borders. Now Garcia has returned to the family for a book, Vanishing Maps, that takes stock of the 20th century through the fractured transnational lives of the extended family. When a family has been pulled apart by the fierce clash of ideologies, can the pieces be put back together? Hauntings, reunions, reimaginings. The wall fell and the Soviet Union dissolved. But the past doesn't go quietly in this book or in this life. Garcia joins us to talk about her career and this new novel right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Christina Garcia, who was a literary star from the beginning of her literary career. Her very first book was nominated for the National Book Award, and she's published a slate of books since then, including her new one, Vanishing Maps, which returns to the characters from that debut book. She was recently a visiting professor at University of San Francisco and resident playwright at Central Works Theater in Berkeley. And she's here with us in the studio. Thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure. Thanks. So this new book really charts that time when the Soviet Union dissolved and this kind of dark possibility opens across the Eastern Bloc. And it opens with this kind of fascinating geography of you know Cuba, Berlin, Miami, Moscow. Talk to me about that context for, for the book. I've been searching for a while for an opportunity to experience for, to write about and have us experience the diaspora of the 21st century mm-hmm. um, and so many seismic cataclysmic events were happening <laughs> in the last 10 years and into the early 21st century that I it was absolutely irresistible um, I didn't plan on revisiting the characters from dreaming in Cuban but uh, But when they resurfaced as a play, I got reacquainted with them and thought, what happened to them? And their futures were kind of overlaid by all of this geographic, political um, change. And and so that it began there. It began with where are they? And what does their world look like as opposed to 20 years earlier? Well, vastly different, of course. It's interesting, too, right? Because as I understand it, Dreaming in Cuban was your kind of most autobiographical book. And then, you know, decades later, you you adapt it for a play um, at, at Theater Works. And did it free you somehow from that autobiographical or semi-autobiographical nature to see them 
moving around on a stage completely outside of your body? It was astonishing, actually. And uh, and I became afraid of my mother all over again. You know, it, was, it had been decades, but it was like, oh, my God, that Lord of this character was so good that every time she was on stage, I... I felt myself tense up and lean back against my chair. So that three-dimensionality of seeing them walking and talking and sometimes as actors coming to me and saying, well, I don't think my character would say that. I'm like, okay. You know, it was it was kind of a free-for-all. And I think it 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 sort of like waking up the dead or something, you know, like it broke that cocoon. Uh-huh. Uh, and then much more seemed possible to me. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, I know that you love to do a lot of deep research, you know, ahead of these books, and we're going to have you read in just a second, um, starting in in Berlin, in this kind of post-fall of the the Berlin Wall uh, world. What did you end up um, researching from that time? Like, what did you read in order to kind of marinate in in that era? Well, I uh, the book prior to this one is called Here in Berlin, and so uh, in 2013, I spent three months in the city literally just wandering. Uh, And I went with that initial idea of like, where are the Cubans? Uh (laughs) And I only found, uh, I found a couple at a world, a world music festival. But other than that, uh, I was like, they've disappeared. Where are they? So my initial idea, uh, I had to pivot. Uh, and, And so I ended up writing a book and reading and researching a book that became a reference to the ghosts, in a sense, of World War II, um, to faux interviews with a lot of people in nursing homes, from old Stasi agents to uh, people who had survived um, the war, who survived year zero, 1945, in Berlin. And so all of that history that I researched informed Vanishing Maps. So I already had a bit of a primer uh, at least for the Berlin sections, which play prominently in this yeah. book. Well, let's hear a little bit from it. Um, do you want to just go cold or do you want to give us any context? Well, it depends what I'm reading. What what should I read? Oh, you're reading, uh, I think it's from the prologue. Oh, well, the Wait. prologue I think speaks for okay. itself. But maybe just very quickly, uh, this, is, uh, this is the character Ivanito, who uh, at the end of Dreaming in Cuban is a, is a boy who gets kidnapped by the evil lord of this. <laughs> okay, mom. Who's definitely not your mom. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Okay, it was definitely not my mother. Um, but anyway, he he studied Russian uh, as a boy in Cuba and between one thing and another uh, becomes a translator and a drag queen in Berlin, in uh, post-wall, fall of wall Berlin. So here he is. Ivanito Villaverde, Berlin. It was past midnight, and the crowd was clamoring for their diva. At Shatsi, everyone danced with whomever they pleased. Tonight was another coming-out party, a flagrant parade of secrets. Life was more alluring when they drank, when they got high, when they swayed as one. Last New Year's Eve, when La Ivanita dragged a jewel-encrusted ball and chain on stage, she'd incited a riot of rejoicing. For this and much more, she was beloved in ravenous after hours Berlin. Backstage, La Ivanita put the finishing touches on her makeup, thickly angled eyeliner, iridescent powder, a slip of pink gloss on her lips. She adjusted her wig and smoothed the satin pleats of her vintage strapless gown. 
For the past four months, she'd been rehearsing a playlist of Olga Guillot's sultriest boleros. Miénteme. Te amaré toda la vida. Total. Until her lip-syncing was flawless. Guillot was her latest muse, a half-Jewish diva, a genius of gesture and melodrama who'd enthralled Cuba in the 50s. Her voice drifted up from the turntable, which was perched next to a crystal bowl brimming with tangerines. La Ivanita appraised herself in the gilded, full-length mirror, a flea market find. The vendor had flaunted its pedigree, but she'd bargained him down to 20 marks flat. A reproduction of Otto Dix's Metropolis hung on the wall behind her, its central panel luridly visible in the mirror. She placed three caramels in a shot glass of schnapps on her tiny Santeria altar, which was flickering with votive candles. A flash of movement over her shoulder distracted her. Levanita turned around, vertebrae cracking, and scrutinized the tangle of glittering costumes in which her fans occasionally hid. She dreamed of finding her Russian dancer there, a god of a man, with whom she'd enjoyed a swoony affair years ago. Ay, her testicles ached just thinking about him. As she faced the mirror again, a thumb-sized turbulence like a speck of thundercloud rotated in the upper left-hand corner. The thundercloud grew three-dimensionally, shooting off miniature lightning bolts, then floated directly into her sight line, as if daring La Ivanita to defy its existence. It was from this vortex that her mother emerged, or rather the ghost of her did, lumpy and sleepy-eyed and wrapped in what looked like a World War II parachute, its edges frayed with red thread. La Ivanita was stunned. She tried to speak, but her throat closed off and her whole body trembled. Was she hallucinating? Her mother shifted incrementally turned in place to show off her camouflage. La Ivanita didn't know where to focus as the colors blended and whirled. Mommy opened her mouth and emitted a low, rasping sound as if trying to rip the fibrous membrane dividing the living from the dead. Imagination, like memory, can transform lives to truth, she used to say. Is that what was happening here? A brazen rearranging of reality? Before La Ivanita could utter a word, Mommy vanished through the same knot in the universe from which she'd appeared. Only the spectral scent of gardenias betrayed that anything unusual had occurred. That was novelist Christina Garcia reading from her latest novel, Vanishing Maps, which revisits the characters from her debut novel, Dreaming in Cuban. We'd love to hear from you. Did the fall of the Soviet Union affect you or your family's life? Tell us that story. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. can email forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on all of the different social things where we're at KQED Forum. You know, these hauntings are so present in our literature, you know, Mexican, Colombian, Cuban. Is this a part of your daily life or does it more exist in the realm of your stories, but not necessarily your trips to, you know, Trader Joe's? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. The uh, the nut and dry fruit aisle is sometimes prone to haunting. <laughs> you know, I just, just be careful, okay? <laughs> 
especially the macadamias. The ma- but, yeah, very, very troublesome. But um, you know, generally, I, I, I am. For me, for me, the ghosts, and there seems to there seem to be ghosts. I'm trying to think back in every book in one form or another. Um, uh, are kind of extensions of character. Uh, they are dubious as to whether they're actual hauntings or uh, or projection of the anxieties and preoccupations of a particular character. Mm. Um, I think they can be both. Um, in this case, it's no accident. Uh, Boy, there's a theme emerging that that the mother is coming back after 20 years. <laughs> and uh, recently, I was doing a, an event in New York with a um, a, a Cuban writer Ernesto Mestre Reed, who was saying that this is his biggest daily haunting is to have to talk to his mother in Miami, and he identified with. Ivanito. So, so in in a way, we're we're haunted whether they're ghosts or not. You know, with that, with that undertow, with that sense of obligation, with that sense of, you know, never ending sense of we owe you for everything you suffered. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I loved also, you know, we had Ingrid Rojas Contreras on the show, you know, who wrote The Man Who Could Move Clouds. And I love the way she talked about ghosts as being sort of um, a more practical way of dealing with history rather than, you know, like there were things that you could do to to work with history if there was an actual thing like a ghost versus not at all, you know, versus just the, the abstraction of things that happened in the past, which that was a beautiful way of thinking about it. Yeah. Terrific. We're talking with Christina Garcia, novelist, about her latest novel, Vanishing Maps. We're also playing some songs from the book here. This is uh, Olga Gio Mienteme. I think I said that at least okay. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking with Christina Garcia. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. She's a novelist, of course. Her latest novel is Vanishing Maps. We'd love to hear from you. How have the political movements in other countries shaped your life? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can join the discussion over on our Discord which is our digital community for Forum. And if you don't know how to do that, go to kqed.org slash forum, and you can find some instructions there. So I do, I want to talk about some of my favorite scenes 
uh, in this book, which are between it, there's the romance, the the renewed romance of some ninety plus year olds, Celia, who is one of the main characters um, from Dreaming in Cuban, and uh, Gustavo, who she sort of writes to in that book. Um, talk to me a little bit about the kind of relationship between those two people, and then we're going to talk about what makes their presentation in this book so unusual. Okay, well, Celia del Pino is the matriarch of this clan from Dreaming in Cuban and also from Vanishing Maps, although she's kind of lost track of all of the the progeny and great-grandchildren uh, all over the world. But she, in the 1930s, had a flamingly hot affair with a married Spaniard, it was 1934, um, and uh, but then he took off uh, for the Spanish Civil War and his wife and left her bereft. Uh, and so I think she would say that she's loved two men her entire life, and one of them was not her husband. Uh, it was it was Gustavo Sierra de Armas, the Spaniard, and Fidel Castro, a leader. Those were her two great loves. And so here she is. Flash forward, she's pushing 90, and she hears from Gustavo, whose wife has finally died. I think she held on to make sure he wouldn't get together with Celia again. And and she's all kind of irritated about it. Like, who does he think he is coming back into my life and being so presumptuous, etc.? Long story short, he convinces her to go visit him in Spain, and that's when the fireworks, the nonagenarian fireworks ensue. Yeah. And I mean, this um, this is actually legitimately a very um, sexy, flirty presentation of their their lives. You know, 60 years after they had known each other. Um, 66. 66 years <laughs> after they had known each other. Yeah, and I am... I guess it. what felt really interesting to me is that the idea, you know, there's a long tradition in uh, arts and letters of, you know, the kind of horny old goat, you know. But here we have this older woman who's presented as kind of having this voracious appetite for this man. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I, I think, um, yes, I think she herself is surprised by the the vehemence of her ardor but there it is and you know there isn't much time left so let's get to it here bro <laughs> so <laughs> so that for me was a very fun to play uh, kind of against that trope that you were mm-hmm. talking about to be honest ab- about all the I- indignities of right. of what transpires but also um the hope of it, and as she says, that you know, nothing that you know, the right lighting and a little camouflage can't remedy. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, I, I think she's she's lighting the way for us all as we uh, right. hit the Medicare years. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I you know, I, I think about it all the time. One time here in San Francisco, just walking down the street, and there was a guy just absolutely dandified, you know, himself, like a little bow tie and his, like, jacket. And and he's got this bouquet of flowers, and he's, like, practically skipping down the street. And you could just, you knew he was on the way to a hot date. Yes, absolutely. And I think about that, like, life goes on, all the things go on, and I I love that about about this particular book Um, and this this romance. Right. No, I mean, I was inspired, even though in in this case, I had an uncle, uh, Eduardo, who, on his... On his deathbed, 
uh, and I went to visit him in Miami in a hospital, he was surrounded by the female nurses all tending to him. Ay, papito! They were giving him a manicure, a pedicure, bringing him little... You know, forbidden treats, and I thought, Addis, you know, he was, he was just. He's like, still got it. He still got it, <laughs> and everyone else was languishing in the other hospital beds, but yeah. he was getting all the attention. So, I wanted to flip the, flip the tables a little bit. I wanted Celia to, to be the one who, is, uh, is at the center of this erotic fixation. Yeah. We actually have, uh, I think, another passage for you to read about the, this reconnection when she arrives in uh, Granada. Okay, great. So, um, so you've heard a little bit about uh, their... But now we get to feel the dynamic. Right. <laughs> I guess the only thing I should, c- could say is that um, this section is interspersed with bits of a uh, poem by Garcia Lorca, Verde que te quiero verde, green... I love you, Green. Which um, and and Garcia Lorca is a poet they both love. So here's Celia arriving in Granada, in which the lovers meet in Granada after sixty-six years. Celia spotted him first. He was wearing a bone-colored suit and leaning loosely on his cane, as if it were decorative, a bit of foppery. A spray of red carnations floated luminously from his grasp. Gustavo was bald and elegant, but didn't remotely resemble the man she remembered. His left eye looked milky, too. A cataract? Celia waited, watching him, as her past and present converged. Gustavo continued to scan the arriving passengers and finally settled on her. His expression flagged almost imperceptibly, but his eyes remained joyful. Celia's fitted green dress was cinched at the waist, but she felt no less a relic. Verde, que te quiero verde. How long had she dreamed of this moment? But in her dream, she and Gustavo were the same ages they'd been in 1934. Supple-skinned, indefatigable, lovesick. Youth was an immortal god, and they had been gods together. Yet this old man didn't displease Celia either. His face was baby smooth, almost pearlescent, and she had to stop herself from stroking his cheek. Mi amor! Gustavo dropped his cane with a clatter and moved toward her, arms wide, carnations drooping. His gait was confident, though lurching. He stood before Celia, unblinking as a child, searching for who she'd once been inside of who she was now. He cupped her chin with a papery hand, his fingers gnarled, knuckles shining, as if he'd polished them for the occasion. You haven't changed a bit. Then Gustavo leaned toward her with lips redolent of eucalyptus and kissed Celia full on the mouth, the tip of his tongue skirting hers, oblivious to the sea of rushing, irritable travelers around them. Verde viento, verdes ramas. So, we begin with a lie. Celia was startled, yet quietly delighted. Gustavo's kiss registered seismically in her body, in its crevices and hidden rivers. Who knew she was still capable of such heat? It always began with the tongue, she thought, that most miraculous of muscles. A part of her didn't want to waste another minute in small talk, preferring to lock themselves up in a hotel room for four more days. 
That would add up to eight days of bliss in one lifetime. How many people? How many people could claim even that? Perfect. That was Christina Garcia reading from her latest novel, Vanishing Maps. We'd love to hear from you. I mean, what questions do you have for Christina Garcia? How have political movements in other countries shaped your life or your family's life? The email address is forum at kqed.org. The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. I the the two of them, I love that line. So we begin with a lie. You know, they're just they immediately are back in the old flirtation after sixty-six years. That must have been so fun to write because Celia's life is one of in, in Dreaming in Cuban, the previous you know, where where we first meet her, it's kind of filled with this longing that never gets fulfilled. Did it feel fun to sort of give her this, you know, like to, to do her this kindness at the end of life? Um, yeah, although she doesn't need charity from me, you know, she, <laughs> she, she, she's earned every bit of her joy. Um, yeah, I mean, I, she wrote to Gustavo for 25 years, although she only sent the first letter. She used to, she used to amass them in these boxes under her bed. And at one point when the re- revolution triumphed in 59, that's her, would be her language, she kept, a, she was always a romantic because she kept a framed photograph of him on her nightstand and would murmur sweet nothings to it at night before going to bed or in the morning. Buenos dias, comandante. Como estas hoy? You know, like, so for her, that, that imaginative space was crucial for her. Um, and the longing is what kept her going and engaged in the revolution. And, and so I think for her, in spite of all her wanting to get down to business in Granada, mm. she is ultimately deeply romantic soul. Well, and it also shows that the inextricability, really, of the personal and political for her, right? Do all of the characters reflect that for you, that they... they they're not really sure where the political ends and where the personal starts and vice versa. Yeah, this is this is a continual conversation among them uh, throughout the novel. Um, and yeah, these these cousins are far flung. Uh, her grandchildren. Yeah. Her grandchildren, Celia's grandchildren. One of them grew up in Moscow, another in East Germany. Uh Ivanito was kidnapped to Brooklyn, you know, as a teen. Uh, Pilar, the Pilar Puente character, ends up uh, as, a, as a sculptor in Los Angeles. And so it really is. It's, it's this huge constellation of, of perspectives and um, uh, political negotiations and, you know, some, some more intense than others. You know, one of the cousins who grew up in East Germany finds that she has a, a twin sister that she didn't know about in Moscow, and they're on completely op- op- opposite sides of the political spectrum. And so they're constantly negotiating and navigating uh, not just these political le- allegiances, but what that means to their individual personal identities. Mm-hmm. Um you know, part of it really feels like you wanted to do a very different kind of Cuban story, right? I mean, there's a set of Cuban stories that I feel like are very well established, you know, and they take place, you know, in Miami as part of the diasporic community there. And, and did that start to feel kind of limiting, perhaps? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, of course, that's part of the story. It's a big part of the story, but it's not where it ends. And and so I was I was primarily interested in um, in 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 exploring how far uh, how far we were traveling almost like after the big bang of 1959 <laughs> yeah, right. everybody all the meter meteorites yeah, are just yeah. shooting out into space with un- unintended consequences yeah. and and so uh and the fall of the wall and the fall of soviet union was hugely impactful for cuba itself i mean they right. were dependent on uh the remittances as it were from the soviet union to stay afloat and so i i was i visited cuba in the 90s i saw as a journalist no, as a, oh, as, a, as a as a family member, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. going to visit family, helping them like put up a water tank and and um, you know track down a goose for uh, no, it was a duck for my aunt who ended up having a little uh, like an Airbnb type situation, and her Canadian guest wanted oh I think we would like duck today, and she she grabs me by my non-existent collar and says, where are we going to find a duck? I said, okay, let's, let's think about this. By the end of the day, we had a duck that was plucked and roasted for her guests, you know, her paying guests. So, so yes, I, I kind of know firsthand those, those struggles, those dislocations, what it meant to lose 30 pounds in a year from hunger. Um, you know, what it meant to get in an accident on one of those Chinese pigeon bicycles because there was no gas to mm-hmm. to fuel your 1950 gas guzzler 1950s american chevy so it was it was complicated and i and i wanted some sense of the fallout the individual fa- the fallout on individuals uh from these seismic events yeah. so what about those kind of generational stories appeals to you like not just you know one era but you can kind of see where where people came from yeah, I don't. I don't think we we can know the present if we we don't telescope backwards, you know, into our histories. Um, history is these are our inheritances. Uh, I mean, as you were talking personally and politically, and I don't know how you live consciously in the present without a, a, a fairly deep understanding of where you came from um and you how do you have any idea of where you're going either you know i think it's absolutely essential so i think we're all like human telescopes that way um and and without it we we can't focus on what matters to us yeah some of the characters seem to get a little bit caught though in nostalgia you know in in particular versions of the past like i'm thinking about the lord this character um uh, oh who, i knew we would get to her yeah you know <laughs> um so t- tell us a little more about about the lord this character we mentioned her at the top as sort of um uh well t- tell us about her well lord this is um uh, very uh typical of her generation. I mean, she left Cuba. She'd had her childhood in Cuba and left in her 20s. And for her, the the um, the nostalgia for the past was unrelenting of everything she'd lost, of everything that could have been that wasn't. Um, and with the more time that has passed, the, the sort of bigger and more grandiose has the past become. I think someone jokes in the book somewhere, 
or at least I've heard this joke, that if um, everyone who claimed that they had a ranch in Cuba actually produced the paperwork, <laughs> Cuba would be the size of Brazil. So it's that. It's that level of... It's both, you know, political and personal inflation. Uh, and and so she, some she's in Miami, and uh, she, she, uh, what do you call it? What do you do when you stop working? You retire. Retire. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Something I should consider probably. <laughs> um, and uh, and she's sort of lost her way. You know, she she had this bakery where she was vowing to fight communism with her crawlers. And now right. she's got nothing to do. And so she just then the whole Elian Gonzalez case happens. Mm-hmm. I know this is long winded, but she gets involved in it to an alarming degree. And it becomes like it was for many of her generation. Uh, a, a, the a, rallying cause. The rallying cause. Everything, you know, they saw themselves in this child, uh, their trauma, everything was through through the cataracts of their trauma. And and so this is what she's living right now in Miami to the extent that she even puts one of her grand, you know, her grandson at risk, uh, Pilar's son, which Pilar, of course, is not happy. Yeah. Um, Gosh, so interesting. I mean, there is there is something I've encountered folks like this in my life who are not able to move on from the Cuban revolution. Uh, you know, it's like something got stuck there and the, the like time stopped in like a really significant way. Oh yeah. We're talking with Christina Garcia, a novelist about her latest novel, Vanishing Maps. She's the author of eight other novels, including Dreaming in Cuba and A Handbook to Luck, The Lady Matadors Hotel and King of Cuba. Love to hear from you. Did the fall of the Soviet Union affect you or your family's life? We'd love to hear that story. Give us a call, 866-733-6786, forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call... Very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Christina Garcia, the novelist, about her latest novel, Vanishing Maps, which reintroduces the characters from her debut book, Dreaming in Cuban, moving them along in time. One question I had for you, Christina, is let's say Dreaming in Cuban came out 30 years ago. What if you'd revisited this story 15 years ago, you know, 2008? Like, how different do you think 
this book would be? How, like, what do you think your mind would have done at that point in your life? Oh, that's an interesting hypothetical. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine because it was the furthest thing from my mind at that point. Mm. I mean, How dreaming, come? dreaming in Cuban was a done deal for mm-hmm. me. Um, you know, it ends with Celia walking into the sea and with some ambiguity. And over the years, everyone was like, well, what happened to Celia? Was, <laughs> was she picked up by the post? By the, I said the postman, by the Coast Guard? Um, and I said, no. I mean, if someone were to put a gun to my head and demand that I come up with this, I would have thought, no, she, she died. She walked into the sea heartbroken and never recovered. And that was it. So, uh, so 2008, I was... Um, working on King of Cuba and, uh, and, and kind of grappling with the, the big macho slugfest that had been going on for decades uh, between the, uh, um, the elephant seals in Cuba and the elephant mm-hmm. seals in Miami. So I, it was far, and it was a very male, you know, toxic male mm-hmm. uh, situation. So I was pretty far from the the nuances of of this world yeah. of this book but but if i can try and answer it i would say um it would have been utterly different because i think this whole concept of the widening diaspora wasn't um kind of part of my internal vocabulary quite yet uh-huh. Interesting. That's interesting. Um, let's hear one more passage um, from the book. This is uh, a kind of structural pieces of the book that are Pilar um, describing photographs from her collection of, of photos, which kind of parallel Celia's letters in, in Dreaming in Cuban. Um, let's hear one of these. Okay, great. So, yeah, Pilar describes a series of photographs. She's a visual artist, so it kind of made sense for her. But this is the very first one, image number one, 1961. It's the moment we leave Cuba. My mother is dressed like a stewardess, sleek in her two-piece suit. It's a black and white photo, but the suit looks navy blue, her favorite color. Mom is wearing high heels and false eyelashes for the 45-minute flight. Her hair is arranged in a stylish twist, topped with a pert pillbox hat. She hasn't seen my father in six months. He went ahead to Miami before sending for us, and she's anxious to look beautiful, better than he remembers. It's difficult to reconcile this glamorous, wasp-waisted woman with the one in a size 26 bakery uniform, sporting a hairnet and orthopedic shoes, and gobbling up pecan sticky buns by the truckload. It's the end of March, and I'm two years and three months old. Mom holds my hand, but the tilt of my body shows that I'm pulling away from her. If not pulling exactly, then leaning hard in the opposite direction. This gesture, how early it appears, captures our lifelong interactions. How do I already know to keep a safe distance from her? Am I rebelling against the scratchy organza and crinoline party dress? My shiny patent leather shoes? To this day, Mom accuses me of being unsociable and indifferent to my appearance, the antithesis of a true Cubana, as if my sloppy ponytail and corduroys were direct assaults on her femininity. In the photo, we're standing next to an American Airlines propeller plane 
an old puddle jumper, that will fly us from Havana to Miami, though the distance will travel us farther than either of us can imagine. Dad will be waiting with orchids for Mom, a stuffed pink rabbit for me. As my toddler self searches for an exit, my mouth is compressed into tight refusal. I'm tempted to caption myself, Hell no, I won't go! Who took this picture anyway? I'm guessing it was another passenger, or maybe the pilot on his way to the cockpit. Mom has never been shy about ordering total strangers around. What I remember most clearly is what happened the day before, when I was sitting in Abuela Celia's lap and playing with her drop pearl earrings. We were in the wicker swing on her porch, overlooking the sea. The sun was high, and the air smelled sweet from the jasmine and gardenia trees. Waves gently lapped the shore. The squeaking swing kept time with the lullaby my grandmother sang to me. Duerme de mi niña, duerme de mi amor, duerme de pedazo de mi corazón. That was Christina Garcia reading from her latest novel, Vanishing Maps. And there's a lot of stuff to pull out of that passage. I think maybe one, one place to start is the sort of conflicted relationship that people in this book have with motherhood. <laughs> right? It's both yeah. like at times completely all-consuming and at other times kind of completely beside the point of living their life. Mm. Um, do you, did you find that as part of your own life? You know, I, I happen to know that you had the wild experience of becoming a mother right as your debut book was like hitting and taking off. Mm, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I don't recommend that. Uh, <laughs> for those of you contemplating um, yeah, having a motherhood hit, and a, yeah. you know, first yeah. novel that takes off. Yeah. Um, I, um, and, and to compound the complexity here, my daughter is named Pilar, uh, kind of like the character. My, I borrowed her future name the future name of my daughter for this character. So, and she's now um, going to be 31 years old in October and an editor in New York City. So it's crazy. And and recently bought a book from one of my former students. It's just like the world is shrinking or expanding. Yeah. But no motherhood. Motherhood. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I... I um, <laughs> It's a fraught subject for me. Not as a mother myself, I feel extremely lucky that uh, I gave birth to a very reasonable child. If I'd given birth to someone like me, it might have been a different story. Uh, uh, But I also, unlike, you know, mothers of my mother's generation, didn't feel the need for control uh, in the same way. I mean, I remember my daughter at one point... uh, because she was, she, everything was not fair, of course. But at one point, she just put her little hands on her hips. She might have been like four years old and said, who made you the boss of me anyway? I'm like, what? <laughs> and of course, I mean, had I ventured anything even remotely like that, I would I would have been smacked, you know. And instead, I laughed and took her into my arms because I loved her feistiness mm-hmm. and wanted to encourage it and her independence. And, and it was... It was far afield from what how I grew up and how my cousins grew up and how many of the Cuban uh, women I know grew up. So I I think um, so so 
looking in the rearview mirror, motherhood was very hard. And especially for me, you know, the first couple of years, just adjusting to the mm-hmm. relentless, relentless there-ness of it. Yeah, right. Which right. Pilar talks about. Um, but but then the the joys of having someone now whom I can sit and laugh and talk about anything, mm-hmm. including my mother, <laughs> who's still alive and kicking in Miami. Yeah. Wow. Um, we have some uh, comments I want to get to here. Uh, sure. Tater over on the Discord writes in to say, I think all of us have an experience of history since the fall of the USSR that is fundamentally shaped by the switch from a bipolar to a unipolar world. The perspective that history had ended and the liberal order would continue to dominate throughout history, and I believe it led to an acceleration of economic domination by the West around the world in formerly second world and non-aligned countries. I think, you know, just to, to pick up on, on Tater's comment, I mean, I think growing up in the 90s in the U.S., I did have this feeling of kind of that political events sort of out there were not necessarily going to shape like my personal trajectory of life. And yet I think, you know, the last 10 years have kind of said to a lot of people like that's actually probably not true about probably, you know, extending right back to the the financial crisis of, of the mid 2000s. Right. Like there was a kind of period of time in which it felt like particularly a lot of young middle class Americans were kind of insulated from the kinds of things that knock characters onto and off of paths in, in this book. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very astute observation um, by your listener. Uh I think many things changed, but they were slow to uh, slow to surface to consciousness. I think the persistence of the Cold War and that Cold War mentality, uh, which was which was very binary, mm-hmm. made it seem like we had won this decades long fight, when really it wasn't about winning. It was about um, evolution, devolution, all of these things happening at once, history unspooling unpredictably, mm. which it tends to do. Mm-hmm. And and so s- suddenly, I think we, you know, as a country, and, and he was discussing the whole corporatization, domination mm-hmm. theme, I think they felt like, well, why do we have to think about workers' rights anymore, which was the big rallying cry of the Soviet Union and elsewhere, regardless of what was happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. But it was like, yeah, so unions, unions diminished. You know the 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 trust and support of unions uh, uh, waned. I mean, so many things happened in the wake of that because we didn't have an adversary uh, to which we had, in a way, had to compare ourselves to. Right. So I think when you're kind of roaming around unfettered that way. Uh, uh, Citizens United can happen. Right, right. Um, want to make sure that we get to one other piece of your career, which is that you have both taught and edited people from a whole bunch of different Latin American backgrounds as someone who broke through early. Um, what do you see as the sort of some of the commonalities across, you know, the literatures of people with their roots in Latin America? And what do you see as some divergences? Oh, my goodness, that's... That's a big question. And I think, um, well, there's there's uh, the Spanish, obviously, although Spanish is not the only language in the Americas, clearly. But, but I think uh, the history that comes with that, 
the musicality that comes with that, the colonialism that comes with that, the Catholicism, which is now more evangelical, that comes with that. Uh, all, all of this, I would say, is a kind of water table uh, for the region, uh, as well as for you know, Latinx populations here, too. But, uh, but aside from those big, broad strokes, uh, I, I think it really comes down to individual communities and individual people within those communities. Yeah. Um, I always I always flinch and react when someone says, well, you're not very Cuban. Uh, and that happened a lot. Oh, you're not Cuban because you don't write in Spanish or you're not Cuban because you trash moms. I don't really trash mothers, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know. Or a Cuban daughter would never be like that. I'm like, uh, hello. Uh, so, so there is this rigid sense, like a rigid public relations sense of what each community is supposed to be. And I think that's the because they have so much anxiety of whom they're performing for. Mm-hmm. You know, the dominant culture, the white culture, whatever. And and so I I think that's starting to dismantle because the numbers are just increasing and. Uh, we used to be on the margins and no longer. We are now renovating and reinventing and re-energizing um, popular culture and in all cultures, really. Yeah, it's funny. I had an experience with my daughter where she was describing, you know, the kind of like classic like Mexican abuelita that she had like seen on, on television and I was like, let me tell you about your actual grandma, who was a total wild woman who like married a bunch of guys <laughs> and loved like tequila and guns and had a half wolf dog. Like they, she, nothing like that kind of stereotypical right. kind of character that you see you see presented. And it does feel like those things are are starting to to break down. Like these more like twenty first century representations of what our actual families are like. Yeah, I think so, too. And nothing against abuelitas, but, you know, I mean, I have actually said occasionally in teaching, can we have some abuelita free free work forthcoming, please? Uh, I mean, we know they're all good cooks and they can braid hair, but enough. Let's keep moving. Not mine. Not mine. (laughs) Not Not mine either, for that matter. (laughs) Um, You know, looking back at uh, Dreaming Cuban 30 years on, I mean, do you if you could go back in now and you could you could change anything about the way that that you um took the reception of the book? Like would you change anything? Like uh No, I think it probably in retrospect was um helpful that I was otherwise engaged with a newborn. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and that and that I didn't spend too much attention too much time paying attention to uh, the feedback I was getting, and uh, and and I and I think, but you wouldn't lap that up more. I mean, maybe that's you know. Well, I had a little, I had some lapping opportunity retroactively, but not so much in the moment. You know, a few years later, when the the next book came out, five years later, my daughter was a little older, and I was looking around. I'm going, whoa, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I gotta like rise to this occasion, like get out of my yoga pants every <laughs> once in a while. So, um, but but no, essentially, um, it's it's as you know, a very solitary. It's very solitary work, and and if you're not comfortable 
being alone for years at a time if you're not essentially a cave dweller, um, <laughs> then it's probably not your thing. Yeah. So uh, I always... I get a little bit overwhelmed and uncomfortable because uh, I mostly spend my days alone. Yeah. What are you working on now? Well, um, I am. I've started working on something, but I may not finish it. I don't know if Vanishing Maps feels like just the right bookend to stop writing. And, and no, you're going to stop. You think? Um, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I'm actually thinking about it. Uh, just because I'm. I just turned sixty-five and. And what else do I want to do with my life? You know, and I've done these pivots before. You know, I've left tenure track jobs. I left journalism, you know, and and without necessarily having a big plan. So I, I might do that, too. Um, wow. Do you have a sense of what, like, are you going to go, like, walk Hadrian's Wall or something? You're going to go, like, <laughs> trek the Himalayas? Like, or 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 what? I'm not really sure, and that and that's part of it. I almost have to stop to to create the space to figure out what's next. Because when I'm when I'm uh, when I'm in the trough of of writing and thinking about writing, everything feeds into it, and there isn't that much margin for exploration. In a strange way, I've been offloading all the adventures on my characters, and now it's time uh, for Christina to to make an appearance. <laughs> You know, without ventriloquizing and everything. We have been talking with Christina Garcia, the novelist, about her latest novel, Vanishing Maps. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Such a pleasure. We're going to go out to uh, Ricardo Montaner, Por Una Cabeza, uh, here going out. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country 
on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.